I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket. I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that everything was stacked against me. Everything, like everything. Never been in trouble, and here I am, got a life bid, and I'm like, I don't know when I'm ever going to get out of here. And I didn't have the death penalty good thing because they probably would have executed me. I grew up trusting the systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me. Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. And today we have a great uh, program. I'm really, really excited because one of the people who I really look up to in the Innocence Movement is here. Justin Brooks is the founder and director of the California Innocence Project. And so, Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And on the phone, we have an extraordinary person named Guy Miles, who served over 18 years in prison for a crime that happened in California while he was in Las Vegas. And I know that sounds crazy, and it is, but when you hear the story, it's just going to get crazier. Guy Miles was convicted of a 1998 armed robbery in Fullerton. He had an alibi, but an eyewitness identified him in court. Years later, the real robbers confessed and said, Miles, this guy had nothing to do with it. Um, so, Guy, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, as I always say, I'm, I'm, I'm gl- sorry you're here, but I'm glad you're here. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, so, um, Justin, take us back, because this, this case, you know, even after 25 years of, of working in this field, when I read this case, I was trying to, you know, my head was kind of spinning. But can you take us through the circumstances of this case, and then sure. we'll get with Guy and, and walk through the whole situation? Sure. So this is a, a, you know, I find myself saying this often, as I'm sure you do, that this is a crazy case. But when you look at the facts of this case, it would be literally comical if it didn't have such tragic results for Guy. Uh, This guy, Bernard Teamer, was paying his car off at a savings and loan. And every time he went in there, he saw that they had a lot of cash. So he gets a couple of his buddies together and says, let's go rob this place. But they know me in there. So I'll wait outside in the car, and you guys go in and rob it. So they pull up in front of the savings and loan, and uh, Bernard has such a short attention span that he actually gets bored while they're doing the robbery. Wow. And he sees an auto parts store, so he decides to do a little shopping. So he gets out of his car, locks the car, goes in the auto parts store, and starts asking about parts for a rare car that he has. The guys come back who've committed the robbery. They can't get in the car. And the actual guy who's working the auto parts store points out the window and says, hey, I think your boys are waiting for you out there. So he runs out, unlocks the car. They get in. They drive away. So now the, the alarms go off. Everybody goes outside. The people from the bank are outside. The guy from the auto parts store is outside. They say, oh, we just got robbed. 
And he says, oh, I just saw those guys. And one of them was in here looking for these parts for this rare car. It, so it takes them about five minutes to catch Bernard, uh, who is 100% guilty of this crime. And then they start trying to piece together who are the other two robbers. Because Bernard's not giving it up. He's not telling them anything. Right. And so the way they do it is this officer puts together um, photo arrays but instead of using the descriptions that are given of the robbers, he instead just puts a bunch of people who live in the same neighborhood as Bernard Deemer, and they don't match the descriptions at all. As you go through the photos, there's really heavy people, really skinny people, light-skinned people, dark-skinned people, people with long dreadlocks, bald people. It's the most ridiculous set of photo arrays you've ever seen, and it's not based on anything except for they're associated with Bernard Deemer. Only one person vaguely matches the description in the photo arrays, and that's Guy Miles. So they went through these photographs of the people in the neighborhood, but they actually managed to somehow forget to put in the photos of the guys who were in the neighborhood, who were the actual perpetrators, who could have been identified by any number of these people that were at the, at the yes, crime scene. and to match the descriptions that are given by the witnesses. And so we had experts actually go through the photos, and they said, based on the description given, the only person that would be picked here is Guy Miles, because they didn't put other people in the photo arrays that match the description. And so they, they violated the most fundamental thing of putting a photo array together. And as you know, there's already enough problems with identifications without following any of the, the basic procedures. And the basic procedure is you have fillers that match the description given by the witnesses. And there were none in there that fit that description. They were all very specific to people in the neighborhood. Right. And so the way memory works is that your mind, especially as more time goes by, and your mind goes towards the one who most resembles. And we know that memory is, you know, some people think it's like a, fo like a, like a, a camera, but mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the farthest thing from it. And it's easily, uh, everyone is easily influenced. And this is why uh, mistaken eyewitness identification is the leading cause of wrongful convictions. And in this case, uh, one of the witnesses, when she came in, she couldn't identify him anyway. When Guy Miles was right in front of her, she couldn't identify him. And the shocking thing that I've seen now in a number of cases is they take a recess, they go out in the hallway, the witness talks to the district attorney, and the next thing you know, they're making the identification. And yeah. the guy goes off to prison for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to see what could go wrong there. Um, and we're going to get into more of this, the fact that there was, there were nine uh, alibi witnesses who could have, who could have, and well, some of them did place yeah, they, Guy in Las testified. Vegas, right? Six of them testified. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you said, I mean, the, and there is a very comical element to that, right? The idea that the guy's in the auto parts store board and then has to come out and the car's locked. I mean, it's literally like, that's the beginning of a movie a that should start. Movie. Yeah, you put Robert Downey Jr. in there, you got a hit. So, um, right. anyway, put Robert Downey Jr. in anything, you got a hit. But that's beside the point. So, let's go back to you, Guy, because I want to get a sense of what your life was like before this this tragedy happened that turned your life upside down. Well, I grew up in uh, Carson, California, um, raised by both my mother and father, um, Christian people, um, good people, you know, inherited and instilled good values in me. You know, I was, I was, I'm not going to say I was an angel. I did get in a little trouble, played a lot of sports, got married, had kids, 
So, yeah, so you sort of, a, it sounds like sort of a typical childhood, actually, right? Nothing, right. Nothing right. crazy. Um, he does have unusual parents in that both of them are ministers. <laughs> and right. every single court hearing, I've never had a client's family quite like this. The entire courtroom was filled with well-dressed, well-behaved people, polite to the DA, polite to the judge, right. even though he'd gone through this total travesty. Wow, yeah, that is an unusual, um, I haven't heard that either. And um, it sort of adds a real interesting element to this. Um, so then fast forward to, what was it, June 29th, 1998, a long time ago. That fateful day when Fidelity Financial Institution in Fullerton, California was robbed by this, these band of idiots. Um, <laughs> it's really like a clown show. And... How did you first find out that you were a suspect? What what happened, uh, and what day was it? Was it the, the day of, or, or soon? It was it was afterwards that you first got arrested, right? Right. It was no. It was uh, actually a couple weeks after the uh, robbery took place. You know, I got a call from my sister that the police were looking for me, wanted to talk to me. Um, I came down from Las Vegas. Uh, came in talked to the officers. Uh, they arrested me right there. They had like seven or eight Orange County police officers there. And, you know, I was, it was kind of strange to me because I'm like, why is Orange County wanting to talk to me? I thought maybe somebody in Carson wanted to talk to me. They arrested me and told me that I was being booked for robbery in Orange County. And I'm like, in Orange County? I haven't even been to Orange County. You know, I was just, <laughs> I was confused, really didn't know what was going on at that point. Did they, they, so, read, they read you your rights and stuff? They read me my rights and told me that I was being uh, arrested for uh, Orange County robbery and that they were going to come to my house and do a raid to see if they can find evidence that links me to the robbery. And so they actually drove me back to the house, uh, raided my house. Uh, Of course, they found nothing because there was nothing to be found. Uh, Whisked me off to Orange County Jail, booked me, and from there, that's where the nightmare started. When did you first get to see a lawyer? Did you request a lawyer? Did you give an interview voluntarily? How did that roll out? I wasn't even thinking about a lawyer because I knew I didn't do nothing wrong. So that was the last thing on my mind is requesting a lawyer. Right, and that's something, and Justin, you weigh in here whenever you want, that's something that I talk about on the show frequently is that if you do get wrongfully arrested, because there's enough people listening to this, there's enough people listening to this show right now that somebody is going to have this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, pro- right, unfortunately, right. probably several people who are right. listeners at some point. You don't think it could happen to you, but I think, Guy, you'd probably agree. It could happen to anyone, right? Yeah, right. I agree. I definitely agree. And people think they can straighten things out often and their words get twisted. I thought this would all be cleared up. I wanted to clear it up and go home. Right. And so, so innocent people almost always give statements because they've got nothing to hide. And often those times those are twisted. And Justin, you know, I think you'll agree, but feel free to correct me because you, you're in the front lines, on the front lines every day. But my advice is give your name, your address, and then the next thing you say is I want a lawyer. Absolutely. And that's it because <laughs> they're not your friends. They're not there right. to help you. And nothing right. you say <laughs> is going to be a, 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 is, is gonna help you. Right. No, there's nothing you can say. There's literally, of all the billions of words in the English language, none of them are good, except for I want a lawyer. Innocent people come in and 
and and are much more forthcoming than guilty people. Sure, right? they're going to be totally cooperative because they think I've got nothing to hide. And and like most right. people, like I grew up thinking that police and and prosecutors and the system is fair and it works and it will are the good know, people. It's they there to protect the you and to protect and serve. That's what mm-hmm. it says on the side of the thing, right? Yep. So on the yeah, side of the cars. But in fact, um, you know, in in many cases, not always, but in many cases, they have a different agenda, and that agenda is just to get you and 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 they don't let and guys, yours is. Is a really a, a, a terrible but perfect example of that. They didn't want to let the fact that there was no evidence connecting you to the to the thing, and that the witnesses weren't certain, and that you had alibis. No, they didn't want to let any of that get in the way of a perfectly good conviction. <laughs> so you're in there, and you're thinking you're going home in 20 or 30 minutes, and you're giving them these statements. You're 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 accused of a crime in a place that you've never been to that happened when you were in a different state. Correct. Yeah, and where and this one really, when you think about it came with instructions, right? Because this is a crime, and in many crimes, there's no witnesses, mm-hmm. right? In this case, you had lots of witnesses who, who got right. very, very good views of it. It wasn't, it wasn't nighttime. They weren't hundreds of yards away, like right. we see in some cases. <laughs> they were right there, right? The, yeah. I mean, and you had the, I mean, the, probably the perfect witness would have been the guy in the, uh, in the uh, auto shop or the, whatever the thing that, 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 that the crazy idiot went into, right. right? Because he was not under duress, Right, and we know that witnesses right. have a much harder time identifying people when they're at the actual crime scene because they're so stressed out and their adrenaline is going crazy. But right. this guy was just trying to sell them some stuff for his fancy car or whatever, and so he would have had no stress. It was just and, a typical and, transaction. And that's why Bernard got caught. I mean, Bernard was uh, <laughs> was in this thing without a doubt. Right. But so. when it came to the other IDs, you know, you had um, guns in people's faces. There was violence within the savings and loan. They were cross-racial. It had all the indicia that you've talked about on this show that create for bad identifications. Right, of course. So when did you get to see your lawyer? Well, I seen my lawyer the first day at court uh, because we were looking for a lawyer. They, they gave me a, a public defender, and public defender came and talked to me. Uh, <laughs> he was really talking about nothing. Seems like he was working with them. So uh, my mother then was like, no, we're going to find a lawyer. Uh, finally found a lawyer by the name of Frank Williams. And uh, he came down and talked to me, and we went into court, pleaded not guilty, and that's when the case commenced. But how about this Frank Williams guy? Was he... uh... Oh, he's a terrible lawyer. Terrible. Terrible. We actually hired him because he was a family friend. You know, he kind of grew up with us, so my mom felt comfortable, you know, hiring him. But uh, he came with all kinds of sets of problems. (laughs) His conduct was definitely suspicious. So um, he used to come see me 2 o'clock in the morning, um, late for court, uh, never prepared, didn't go talk to any other witnesses out of state. And it was just, I mean, <laughs> it was crazy. His yeah. whole investigation was bizarre and, and, and unprofessional. Was he even a criminal lawyer? Yeah, he was a criminal lawyer. He's disbarred now. Oh, he was a criminal lawyer and a criminal well, yeah. and, we yeah, see, exactly. and we see that a lot. It's, you know, it's always a smell test when you're looking through that we get 6,000 letters a year seeking assistance. So there's always a smell test with, you know, which of the cases we think we got an innocent person here and we can do something about. And it's breathtaking the number of people who we look up the lawyer in the calbar.org website and find that they're disbarred.
Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. So let's go back to the courtroom. Um, you know, you've painted a picture, which is really, again, feels like a movie to think about your parents um, being, you know, distinguished members of the community, um, your friends being there, their friends being there. Um, and yet they're like the only distinguished people in the courtroom, as it turns out. The rest of the system is broken. So how did it how long did the trial take? And I want to get to what the moment was like, which I'm, I'm guessing was probably the worst moment of your life. It's probably a pretty good guess. Um, when, when you found out that you were going to be spending basically the rest of your life in prison. Well, the trial took actually to get to get to the point of trial. It took like almost two years. I fought the case for almost two years before I actually went to trial. Once I got to trial, um, it was probably like maybe four weeks, four to six weeks before the actual verdict came down. It's a long trial. And they deliberated for a long time. They deliberated, wasn't it five days they deliberated for? Uh, guy? Seven days. Seven, seven days, days. Were deliberation. So you, I mean, all you need to hear is that to know that there's problems with a case. If, if right. citizens are willing to sit in a room for seven days and argue about it, how is there not reasonable doubt? 
after a four to six week trial. Right. So these are people who've been removed. They want to go home. Yeah. They want to go back to work. They (laughs) want to go see their, you know, whatever the hell they're doing is better than this. Yes. Um, They actually came at one point, came with a hung jury, and mm -hmm. the judge sent them back in there to uh, re deliberate and see if they can come to some kind of, you know, agreement. (laughs) And you were being held in custody this whole time? The whole time. Where were you? I was guilty until proven more guilty. Oh, yeah, I never heard that before. <laughs> I'm glad you can laugh about it now. Um, so you were guilty until proven more guilty, and where were you being guilty at? Um, where were they holding you? Uh, Orange County Jail, Orange County, California, um, Santa Ana Court. That's the court I went to. So the moment comes, the, the hung jury's been sent back and back and whatever, and they're sitting there and days are turning into weeks. And um, finally, they come back in. Uh, they tell you they've got a verdict. What were you thinking? Did you think that after all of this, I'm sure you had lost a lot of faith in the system by now, but did you still think you were going to be exonerated? Um, I did and I didn't. But let me rewind a little bit before that, uh, that deliberation, before that uh, verdict came down. Um, I, was, I was in there doing everything I could to get uh, notice to this court. I um, wrote the mayor of Orange County. Um, I even wrote the witness, the victim in the case, and told her she had a right to, you know, really investigate this this case and see if I'm really the guy who did it. Of course, that letter was returned because they said I couldn't write to a victim. Um, I even wrote numerous letters to the district attorney. We sat down and had a long conversation. And she told me in front of him. She said, I don't believe you did this case, but you're good for it. And I couldn't believe she told me that right there in front of my attorney. That was the an assistant DA? That was Karen Walk. And she, she was, was a deputy district attorney. That, so she came in. I'm just processing this now. So she came in and said, what exactly? She told me to my face, I don't believe you did this. The pieces to the puzzle doesn't fit. But you're good for it. You've been in trouble before, so, hey, you're good for it. And they even tried to um, get my attorney to um, have me go in a room with Bernard Teamer or somebody else and wear wire and all kind of crazy stuff. She was They were trying to set up. That never even came out, but all that stuff was being set up. Um, I even stood up at the counsel table while the, witness, while the victim was on the stand stood up and asked her if she can get off the stand, come look at me closely. And uh, first the, D, uh, the DA rejected it, then she let her come down. The victim came down and said, hey, that's not him. That's not the guy right there. The DA rushed, take a recess, rush Well, it was already in recess. Take the victim outside, um, talk to her. She come back. They bring the jury back in, and she points me out and says, yeah, that's the guy. And they say, well, what changed your mind from that time? Excuse me? I mean, I'm just in ch- I'm just like, I, I, I just, I'm. <laughs> so they asked, my lawyer asked her, what um, changed your mind from the time you said it wasn't him till the time the DA took you? I said, well, she showed me a picture, and I said, that's the guy on the picture. Right. And it looks like him, and, you know, maybe he cut his hair or something. They went on this long tangent about me cutting my hair or whatever. So, um, yeah. So, so they go. We get back down. 
So they go back to the they go back to the photo that she ID'd from, and this is the classic sourcing error for an identification where the witness now is completely confused because they're saying, No, no, this is the person you identified. See, this is him. And now they're matching the photo with Guy, and of course it is him. He's in the photo that they did the ID from. And now your sourcing is so difficult, you don't know whether you're IDing him from the crime scene, you're IDing him from the photo, you're being reinforced by them saying, this is the person who committed the crime. Wow. And you see this happens over and over and over again. This is not a rare instance, unfortunately. The DA saying, I know it's not you. You have the witness going, I know it's not you. You got nine eyewitnesses saying, I know it's not him. Right, nine alibi witnesses going, well, well you know it's not Well, actually, more him. than nine. Only nine was accepted. Oh, right, only nine came <laughs> to, to court, and I think six were allowed what? to testify. But you had... That's another frustrating thing about this judge. The judge says, this is redundant testimony. Well, how is right. it... He, and he limited the number of alibi witnesses. That it just doesn't make and how is it redundant testimony when each individual is a separate credibility determination by the jury where they might believe one or won't believe another, there are different circumstances. The judge just was tired of it. Let's move on. Okay, a bunch of you say he wasn't there. Next. And half of Las Vegas ready to testify for you, right? Basically. <laughs> yeah. Steve Wynn rolled out on the stand. I mean it's like That's oh the my. first time I've ever seen that in a case where a judge said alibi witnesses were redundant testimony yeah i mean why let an alibi witness get in the way of a perfectly <laughs> good you know, conviction right or a perfectly <laughs> bad conviction in this case yeah. oh my god um and a little interesting rock and roll tidbit you'll appreciate is one of the witnesses described one of the suspects as looking like warren g and that becomes important later on when we find the guy who does in fact look like warren g and bring him into court, and we're looking over him saying, this guy does look like Warren G. Guy Miles doesn't look anything like Warren G. And, but this elderly white judge didn't seem to be able to make any of those distinctions mm. between Not a rap these. fan? <laughs> um, so not, not good at, at cross-racial identification either. He was, he was as bad or worse at it than the witnesses. And while we're on that subject, um, you know, because we're dropping a lot of knowledge here, which I'm glad that, you know, having you here is really great because of the fact that we can get into some of these topics in the way that we do. Um, but we know now from study after study that as, as prone to error as eyewitness identification is, and it's wildly prone to error, we know that cross-racial identification is much worse, much less reliable. It's the worst. It's the worst, yeah. Half the people I've walked out of prison have been as a result, they were convicted as a result of cross-racial identifications. Because when you work in Southern California, we're a mixing pot, and (laughs) it's constant. It's whites and Latinos and blacks and Asians, and they're almost always wrong. So bear that in mind, those of you out there who are listening, um, you know, if you're on a jury and you're looking at somebody at a case where a, you know, that's the centerpiece of the prosecution is a, an eyewitness identification, be aware that they're extremely unreliable. And then if it happens to be a cross-racial identification, you can basically just throw it out the window because, you know, there have been studies that show that you actually have a better chance of being right just by guessing. Yep. 
Um, and there's a classic study you could look it up from I think it was the 1890s in England, and it's been it's been done over and over again where they took people who didn't witness a crime and they got it right more often than people who did, and that's right. due to a, a, a number of factors, including adrenaline and and you know pressures of all You're different right. kinds and psychological factors, and so yeah. Um, so and that, it if, just starts by the way with it's the first four years of our life where we code how to do facial recognition. So if your mom is white, your dad is white, your brother's white, your sisters are white, you actually can't develop that skill to do facial recognition as well with other races for the rest of your life. If you come from a multiracial right. family, in those first few years you get a lot of exposure to a lot of races, you get better at it. But it's just as simple as that. It's a human thing that all human beings need to develop facial recognition, and it happens in the first few years of their lives. So back to you, Guy. Um, okay. So now the moment comes. It's been an unbelievable ordeal already. And now you've dealt with this trial that's gone on for a month and a half or whatever it is. The jury shuffles back in. Um, did you think at that moment that you were going to be found guilty or innocent? I really didn't know. I had a bad vibe looking at the jury, how they wouldn't look at me. And uh, I don't know. I, I was. I guess I was hopeful that I wouldn't be found guilty. But I don't know. I just. I just had that eerie feeling that those twelve people in there were going to find me guilty, especially after the judge sent them all back in. So, you know, I was more on the I'm gonna get found guilty than I would not being found guilty. I mean, being found innocent. And then the moment comes. And then the moment comes, and <laughs> they stand up and find me guilty on all counts. And what can you describe that moment? I mean, I'm sure it's painful to even talk about it, but, um, you know, was it, I mean, the, the courtroom must have erupted. I'm sure there were tears. And, I mean, how did you even process this? At that point, I wasn't even worried about myself. I was looking at my mother. I was watching how she broke down. Um, I knew there was going to be complications to her health. Um, I just seen the tears. I just seen her tears just coming down, and I knew then that um, it was going to be a tough road. And I just um, just put my head down and just just said, "I'm gonna have to deal with it, whichever way it comes. I'm just gonna have to deal with it." But I was more concerned about my mother than anything else at that moment. Well, that says a lot about your character too, um, and. You know, and you're here, uh, I think, as a result of of your character and of your, you know, the strength that you found to withstand something and persevere through something that I think uh, almost anybody else would have, you know, given up, given in and, you know, died in prison um, because you were sentenced to 75 years to life. And now you find yourself in this dangerous, hostile uh environment with no way out uh, where do, uh, how can you explain that uh, <laughs> it was a hard journey um i had to i had to and i tell this story uh frequently i tell justin them this all the time um i had to basically just trick my mind into believing that i was going to get out tomorrow the next day soon but i knew in my heart of heart that that wasn't going to happen but I had to kind of like trick my mind to believe in that. 
I had to, you know, have long talks with myself. I had to, had to walk back and forth, you know, in a cell and just tell myself that it's, you know, it's, it's going to get better later. You're going to be out. They're going to find the truth. You're going to go home, and all this is going to be a distant memory. Uh, after three or four years, you know, I'm still playing the same game with my mind. I'm praying a lot. I'm, uh, you know, I'm talking to my mom and father. Um, they're keeping me strong. Like I said, as Justin said, they was at every court date. <laughs> they were at every, accepted every phone call, uh, came to every visit they could. Um, they even made sure that my kids got there. They brought them. So um, I saw them fight for me. So I couldn't let them down. I had to fight for myself, too. And that's what I did. But, again, at the same time, I had to play with my mind a little bit and make myself really believe that I was getting out the next day or the day after that or the week after that. But in some near future, I was coming home. Guy's spirit was incredible, and I deal with hundreds of of people in prison. Every single student who went to see him, every time I saw him, he'd keep his spirits up. Uh, we'd call him Smiley Guy. He, you know, he never felt sorry for himself. He just kept committed towards, you know, thinking I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of this nightmare. And I think you're right, Jason. There's a certain kind of special person. You've had a lot of them on this show. That to survive that situation, like you don't know if you do it. I don't know if I do it. And. It's hard to believe where people can muster up that kind of strength to be in prison for something you didn't commit. Every morning you wake up, it's a surrealistic nightmare. And yet there are these special people who survive it like I. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. And so, Justin, how many times did you visit Guy in prison? Can you even count? Uh, we had a lot of visits, a lot of time in <laughs> San Quentin, <laughs> Spent a lot of time up there. Um, I, every Christmas... I yeah. do my Christmas tour and I drive all over the state of California and try to see all my clients who are locked up because that's the hardest time of the year for them. So I definitely see a guy every Christmas. In fact, I just said to him yesterday, I'm glad I'm not going to see you next Christmas yeah. in prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. And it would seem like, you know, getting the California Innocence Project involved. I mean, you literally went from the outhouse to the penthouse in terms of legal representation <laughs> yeah. to go from 
Um, and by the way, I'm going to put in a plug right now for people to support the California Innocence Project. And how do they do that, Justin? Go to CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org, and they can see Guy Miles' story there and, and all the clients that we've freed. That's CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org, and we're going to get into more of that in a minute. But, um, but so it took 15 years, even with the best team of lawyers you could want or have, and it's interesting, too, and we're going to get to the happy part of the story in a minute. Um, but before we get there, because I saw that amazing video of, uh, of you getting out and, uh, and Justin uh, greeting you and driving you and uh, <laughs> so much joy in that, it's just really hard to explain. And, and people can watch that, too. Um, if, you, if you Google it or you go to CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org, you'll find this remarkable video that's been viewed millions of times, which is so great. Before we get to the, 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 you know, the, the best part of the story, which is the moment when you were actually declared innocent, um, is there, going back, if you could tell us, was there a, a time you could identify or, or moments you could identify as the happiest, if there was a happy moment in prison, and was there a moment when, which was really the darkest time that you had? Well, I say the darkest, darkest time was finding out my mother had cancer. Um, that's when I felt like, oh man, how will I get through this? If something happened to my mother, how would I get through this? It was always that fear of getting a phone call or sliding the uh, letter under the door saying you need to go see the chaplain. You know, I lived with that every day when she was in the hospital. Um, but luckily, she pulled through, um, and she overcame the cancer. My happiest days was writing that letter to the California Innocence Project, and they finally accepted me as a client. I knew then that there was hope, and, you know, I heard so much about the organization, but it was just like I, I could never get in that. You know, everybody tries to get to the Innocence Project and get turned down, or they don't have enough uh, resources to handle their case. So... You know, in my mind, hey, I'm probably not going to make it either, but I'm sure going to try. And uh, I wrote letter after letter after letter, and they responded back to me and told me that they will review my case. It took like maybe six, seven months for them to review the case. Oh, man, I was overjoyed there. It was like, hey, light at the end of the tunnel. It, but it was a long tunnel. It was a <laughs> long legal tunnel. Another way this case is extraordinary is we got a habeas hearing, but as often happens in California and other states, it was assigned back to the trial judge. So the trial judge already had his own personal biases about the case, and he'd heard it. And he kind of went through the motions of that hearing, and we lost. So we presented the, all the problems with the identification. I cross-examined the original officer who did the ID. And in fact, by the time I was done my cross-examination and showed him all the mistakes he'd made, he actually came over to me and said, I didn't do any of this intentionally, and if it's my mistake that led to your guy being wrongfully convicted, I really hope you win. So he realized he wasn't even intentionally doing these photo arrays the way he did it. He just wasn't trained well. This was who that said that to you? This was the investigating officer who did the identification procedure. Montgomery. When I showed him saying... Montgomery. Yeah. When I showed him, like, you don't put photos of people who don't match the description. And I took him through all the procedure manuals and how you put them together. So we go through the whole hearing. We show all the problems with the IDs. We bring in the alibi witnesses. We put the whole thing back on, and we lose. 
And then Alyssa Bierkel, who's an amazing lawyer in my office, who doesn't give up easily, she appealed that decision. And then we went back and did it a second time, and we lost. Was it the same judge again? Yes. And then we went back up to the Court of Appeal, and as a matter of law, reversed the, the decision, saying that we had brought in sufficient evidence that this conviction should be reversed. And then we came up against another obstacle, which I think is an interesting thing to explore, in that the district attorney's office, after this whole journey, said, where are we prosecuting? So I sat in a jail with Guy, and I'm sure he'll remember, because it was a year and two days ago. And I said, here's what we're looking at, man. You've been exonerated but they can always re-prosecute, and they say they're re-prosecuting. And in fact, Alyssa put together a whole stack of pretrial motions just to see if they were bluffing, and they weren't. They were going back to trial. Best case scenario, you get exonerated at trial, but that means you're going to sit here in jail until that's over, and I don't know how long that's going to be. Worst case scenario, a jury convicts you again, because who knows? I don't think that will happen, but I'm sure you didn't think that was going to happen the first time around. If you take this deal now and plea out, they'll walk you out of here today. And what do you do in that situation? And how do you advise your client? I just got to lay it out to them. That's the honest truth. I think I'm going to win this retrial. I think I'll get you exonerated. But I can't give you any guarantee of that. This will get you out today. So plea bargains are now defining the entire system and this wasn't true 10 15 years ago when we get an exoneration everyone would walk away and now i'm seeing two paths happen across the united states there's some very astute district attorneys who are getting ahead of these stories creating conviction review units and getting in on the exonerations and there's other ones that are digging their heels in and fighting these things to the bitter end because they don't want to lose they don't want to be sued they don't want these stories in the news and, and it, it's really terrible because in, in California, even in Bakersfield, even in San Bernardino, they didn't used to fight exonerations once we won. And now well, they are. And it's crazy because, you know, you know, the public really needs to be made aware that this is your tax dollars at work, right? Mm-hmm. You have prosecutors who've been proven wrong, who've had a higher court tell them, uh-uh, nope, you screwed this up. This wasn't your guy. And they're going to come in, and instead of doing their jobs, they're going to go and spend more weeks and months and overtime and this and that and Mm -hmm. everything else. And then they're going all in the hope of reconvicting an innocent guy who's then going to go back to prison where we're going to continue to pay for that, right? And the costs of of incarceration in America are staggering, right? I mean, just, just in terms of on a very basic mundane level, just the money that the taxpayers pay to keep people, innocent people, but everybody. They even do it, by the way, Jason. They do it in cases where there's no time left. Another one of my clients, Bill Richards, they threatened to re-prosecute him. And had he, they successfully won that re-prosecution, he was already on parole. So they were willing to spend county money going through an entire murder trial again, where at the end of that result would be no incarceration anyway. So what could that possibly be about? So we filed a, a motion that they were using their office irresponsibly, and it was prosecutorial misconduct, and then they dropped the case when that was picked up by the media. 
you're, you're absolutely right. These are our resources. We only have a limited number of resources for criminal justice, and they're just not being allocated correctly because a lot of times people's egos derive those decisions. You said something, by the way, heartbreaking to me that day, Guy, and lawyers aren't supposed to cry, but it made me cry. And you said to me that you didn't want to let me down by taking a plea. And I've talked to other lawyers about that in our movement because I think it's an important message that lawyers remember that sometimes the clients think they're letting us down. And I said to you, you know, this is your life, man. You got to do what's best for your life. And and I'm glad you did that. You know, they fought so hard um, since they took my case. I mean, (laughs) it was nitty gritty. They they got down and dirty. They really got out there and uh, got the evidence. I mean... They fought tooth and nail. We had, like I said, two uh, evidentiary hearings, another hearing in the uh, appellate court. It was like never giving up. So I told Justin that because, you know, I just watched the dedication in him, the the, the fight in him, and it was just like, man, me me copping out. It was like letting them down after all they did for me, you know. And that's why I told him that. I just, I just, I just felt bad, you know, like basically bailing out on them. And that's why I told him that. So you ended up making the decision that I think almost anyone would make faced with that impossible choice. Um, and, it had, and you had to plead down. Did you plead it down? Or do you have to plead guilty to the crime in the first place? You plead place? no contest yeah. to the charges. Right. So it's like an Alfred plea. Yeah. Um, so you pleaded no contest. Uh, it had to be a, another bitter pill to swallow. Um, and now you have to live the rest of your life as a convicted felon. Uh, Don't tell me about it. As if they didn't do enough. And we were trying to, and we at the same time were fighting for clemency for Guy, because Guy is is part of what we call the California Twelve, which are twelve clients we identified. Well, now it's five, six years ago as being great cases for clemency from Governor Jerry Brown. And the governor has the power to at any time give anyone clemency he wants to give in the state prison system. Unfortunately, most governors use it in, you know, to give it to people who are connected to power or someone who happens to work in the governor's mansion in the garden. It's very random. And so we identified these 12 cases and we actually walked clemency petitions from my office in San Diego. I walked all the way to Sacramento with those clemency petitions, 712 miles. Guy's family walked a good portion of that with us. And How long did that take? It took 50 days. It was walking the entire way up the coast, all on the highways. That's some Forrest Gump shit right there. It was. I had a, <laughs> I had a far. Yeah, some, if you go on YouTube and say Justin Brooks Mile 450 Innocence March, you can see how I looked at Mile 450. I looked like Forrest Gump. And, and we had hundreds of people with us by the time we got to Sacramento. And we presented those 12 clemency petitions to the governor. He has still not acted on any of them. This is now five years later. And in that time, we've released five of those 12. There's still seven left in prison. The governor now has 180-some days left in office, who's counting. And during that time, he could give clemency to these final seven. And so I've been every day on social media asking people to call the governor, write the governor, ask him to grant clemency to the California 12. And um, if anyone can follow me on Twitter at Justin O. Brooks, uh, every single day they can retweet to the governor. And he gets these messages, but he hasn't done anything about it yet. 
And in Guy's case, we're sitting there with a plea offer, the possibility of clemency, and it's this very high-stakes poker that you're playing, and we find to make the decision of playing the card of, of him taking this deal so he can move on with his life, which is, of course, Guy's decision. There's a rumor going on uh, around that you're going to do another walk. Yeah, I'm going to do the final 100 miles, which is actually some of the most brutal part of it, because I'm going to walk from San Francisco to Sacramento in, uh, in September. And this time I get to be a part of it. You def- wow. You're definitely coming and walking, my brother. <laughs> yeah, yep, I'm there. Sounds like I better get my sneakers out, too. I what would time? love yeah. that. It'll be the last 100. On the, the He'll have 100 days left in October, and so... On that day, we're going to walk the last 100 miles, and it'll take about five days, doing about 20 miles a day. And we'll go to Sacramento and try to get his attention again to these final seven cases. It's just heartbreaking. They are compelling cases with strong evidence of innocence, every one of them. And you can see them on our website at CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. And can people sign up to do the walk there, too? Uh, yeah, they can get information about the walk, and we'll tell them where the rallies are. And, and if they follow me on Twitter, I'll be tweeting about it between now and then. And, and that's uh, Justin O'Brooks on Twitter. Um, yeah. Why are the last uh, 100 miles the most uh, brutal? Because it's so hot, and you're just crossing California. I mean, a lot of people said to me, why didn't, why didn't you guys walk up the five? It's like, if we walk up the five, you'd be dead. It goes through the desert the whole way. So we did the coastal walk, and, and Big Sur is very beautiful. Uh, it's it's not as fun when you're walking it and going up and down those hills, but at least it's not brutally hot. But when you cut inland and we hit there at around June, uh, it was insanely hot that last hundred miles when you're walking to Sacramento. That's a that's a lot of walking. That's an incredible incredible story, and I'm glad you told it. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I think, look, I'm, I'm very optimistic that this governor will do the right thing. Um, he's certainly been actively uh, pursuing cases mm-hmm. for clemency. He's granted, um, I think, more clemencies for lifers than any previous governor. Or probably he's, yep. he's granted a lot of clemencies, but most of them have been out-of-custody people, right. people with old drug charges. But, yeah, th- this governor's been on the right side of a lot of issues, a lot of progressive issues, which is why I was willing to walk 712 miles because I thought, this guy will do this. And uh, I think it's important to, for people to realize that that stigma is gone. You know, mm-hmm. President Obama granted 1,760-something clemencies in the last days in office, and there wasn't a peep from anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and by the way, I was advocating for much, many more than that. But nobody said a word. Right. There wasn't one article written. Or, hey, right. wait, wait, what's going on here? No, I mean, like, it's, it's not a thing anymore. So, I, you know, it's like... It's just not a thing. Right. So well, the pendulum always swings. Right. So, um, Guy, before we get to the closing of the show, um, I did want to ask you about that moment when the high court, the Court of Appeals, reversed your conviction. Because it has to be just the opposite of the devastation that you felt um, when you were wrongfully convicted in the first place. Can you describe that moment? I was excited when I got the word that um, uh, the appellate court had reversed my conviction. Um, How'd you find out? I found actually I found out through my daughter. She told me she's like, "Hey, Dad, hey, Dad." I happened to call my daughter, and uh, she was like, "Hey, Dad, did you hear what happened?" I was like, "What?" She was like, "You know, you're coming home." I was like, "Huh? What are you talking about?" And she said that we just got word that um, 
the appellate court reversed your conviction and they're letting you come home. I was like, what? I guess she had it all wrong. She heard reverse, and she thought it just immediately I come home that day. So uh, <laughs> I was excited. I instantly called Justin and them, and they confirmed what she had told me, that uh, the appellate court had reversed my conviction. But there was still a process that we needed to go through to see if uh, the district attorney was going to retry me or just decide to let the case go. Uh, we got word that the Supreme Court wanted to look at the case. And so here's the, the agony again. <laughs> We're now waiting on the Supreme Court to review the appellate court's decision. But uh, anyway, they elected to um, leave the case as it was, but um, I believe they, um, what was that, Justin? They um, Yeah, we we passed a new evidence law in California. California had actually the toughest new evidence law in the country. And I know this because I wrote a law review article on the topic and read every one of them. And in California, you had to have new evidence that completely undermined every element of the prosecution's case. Wow. And so unless you have overwhelming evidence of innocence, really anything short of DNA, and you're going to have trouble winning a case in California. And we got a new law passed in California that mimics the rest of the states that just basically says, if you have evidence that you wouldn't have been convicted at trial... Had the jury heard it, they wouldn't have convicted you. That's sufficient. And because we had that new evidence law in California, we well surpassed that standard in Guy Miles' case. So, Guy, you know, it's after talking to you and after seeing the video of you uh, on the way home, uh, I, I feel like I know you already, which is great. I'm looking forward <laughs> to getting to know you in person. Maybe we'll be doing some walking together. Um, yes. So, but I, I, we have a... We've come to the point in the show, which is my favorite part, and I think probably the audience's favorite part, which is the part when I stop talking. And uh, the tradition here is at the end of each episode, I turn it over to our distinguished guests and let you have the last word. And you can literally say whatever you want about whatever you want. Um, I, I think everybody is, me most of all, is really interested to hear what you have to say. But we're going to save the best for last, and we're going to let Justin go first. So, Justin, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. You know, this this is our collective criminal justice system, right? So I, I don't think we can just sit back and do nothing about all the failings of it because it's our failings. And that's why I love this show. I love the work that you do. I love our community because we're trying constantly to make the system better. We know we can't perfect it. We know we'll never hit 100%. Um, but there's a lot of changes that can be made so that innocent people don't go to prison and so that innocent people get out of prison. And Guy Miles is another example of things that can be done to make the system better, Pr improve identification procedures, Let's stop with the sentences that are so high that people are forced into pleading guilty to things they didn't commit. Um, there's a lot of reforms that we can make. And so I think we learned something about every one of these cases, and we learned something that we need to do. So I'd ask your audience to you know, take action and get involved. You know, Go to our website, CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org, see things that you can do, and, and, and just... Get involved. Do jury duty. <laughs> Get involved in your community. Be part of the solution, or you're really part of the problem. Guy, hey. turn, we'll turn it over okay. to you now for last words. First of all, I just want to thank uh, the California Innocence Project 
for even uh, accepting my case and after accepting my case, going the distance to um, find what was needed to show the the judge, the justice system, and everybody else around that there are actual innocent people in jail. My daughter, Taja, um, the hardest part uh, being away from her was her first pregnancy, um, having my grandson. I remember her uh, telling me, I know it was hard for her to tell me that she was pregnant at a young age, and, you know, I wasn't there to kind of help her through that time. So it, that was kind of hard for me, but I want her to know that I love her and I don't judge her, and, you know, she's always going to be my little baby um, guy, Charles, you know, the same to them. You know, those are my boys, and I know it was hard for them while I was away, but I also love them. And, uh, you know, I'm home now. We can put all that behind us and just move forward and just thank God that we're able to, you know, reunite and, and just, you know, be a family and continue doing what we're doing. And that's having fun, talking, and <laughs> enjoying each other's company. And uh, a special thanks to my mother and father, um, definitely for not wavering, uh, being there for me every step of the way, uh, never turning their back on me. Like I said, when I got out, they knew I was innocent coming in. They knew I was innocent coming out. Um, they continue to fight for me. Even when it looks like uh, things were bad and I wasn't coming home, they never gave up, and they continue their fight with Justin, Alyssa, and the rest of the gang at the California Innocence Project. Um, to everybody else out there who's going through the similar or the same thing that I'm going through, um, continue to to fight, continue to keep hope alive, just stay strong and and believe. Not every DA is bad, not every judge is bad, not every lawyer is bad, but um, we just have to pray and ask God to just continue giving us strength that we do find the good ones. And uh, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. And like I said, I'm looking forward to getting together with you and doing some walking. Um, and I will see you in California, and hopefully someday we'll get you to New York and we'll put the red carpet out for you. Again, thanks for, for being part of it. It's a pleasure. Give my, give my love to your parents, Guy. I will. I will. All right. See you later. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. 
American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.